You are listening to the First Baptist Jinx podcast. To learn more about FBC Jinx, including our gathering times, visit us online at fbcjinx.org. Today's talk comes from Pastor Cody Brumley. Well, good morning, church family. It is great to be with you. Uh, those joining online and those over in Overflow, thank you for making space for more people to be here. Uh, we are going to be in Jonah looking at one of the greatest moves of God in human history. We find it in Jonah chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, you can open up there. And we start Jonah 3 in a way that I hope stirs your heart just a little bit to consider what it would look like to actually see this happen, to see an entire city bend the will to the Lord, turn to God, throw all their hope on the mercy of God as a city. And I've been wondering as I've studied this, what, what would it take? What would it take to see a move of God like that? And we get our answer in our text in Jonah 3. Jonah 3 opens similar to Jonah 1, right? Jonah 1 and 2 mirror Jonah 3 and 4 that way, and so it opens with the word of the Lord coming to Jonah, except what we know is the last time the word of the Lord came to Jonah, he ran. And after he ran, God chased him down with a storm, and then God chases him down with a big fish, and so by this point, Jonah's heard from God, but he's ended up being like fish spit up on dry land somewhere. So that's what's happened, and now we're getting to Jonah 3. And we don't actually know how much time has passed. Some people think Jonah's lying face down in the dirt still, smelling fishy. Other people think he got up and he went back home and he was just going to live out his days as a failed prophet. But we don't actually, it doesn't matter how much time has passed. It doesn't matter where he's at. What matters is what happens here. Look at Jonah 3.1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. If you're an underlining person, highlighting person, you might, you might underline or highlight second time because that highlights the point of this entire book. This book was given to us that we might comprehend that the mercy of God is incomprehensible. It goes after people that we would never think it was for. It chases people who run from God. God's mercy is what's seen in that beautiful sentence that the word of the Lord came to Jonah again. Can you imagine after everything he'd done, running from the Lord, the hatred in his heart, the lack of care for the sailors that were going to die, like after all of that, Jonah hears from the Lord again. And for some of you, you might just need reminded that you can't out-sin and you cannot outrun the mercies of God. At any moment, you can turn to the Lord and he welcomes you back and he has life waiting for you. And so here it is the second time. But even as I say that, I became aware of kind of a false belief in my own heart while I was reading this. Because my thought is, man, like if God can use Jonah, right? If God is going to let him have a second chance after all of that. And what that implies is that there's people God should use. That somewhere inside of me, I have this subtle thought that, man, people like Jonah, that's the mercy of God. But then there's good people, right? There's there's well-spoken people, or there's rich people, or there's people of influence. There's people that God should be using. And that shows that I easily forget Everyone is saved by the mercy of God. And everyone is sent by the mercy of God. There is none of us fit for this. It is God's incredible mercy that any of us know him. It's all the same for us. And God saves you by his mercy to send you by his mercy. If you are saved by the mercy of God today, it was because he meant to send you with that mercy for others. That is why. So who does God send Jonah to? He says, arise, this is verse 2, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. 
Now this sounds like chapter 1, verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now this part is kind of funny. Can you imagine being Jonah now? I'm hearing from the Lord. And do you know what the Lord says to Jonah after all this mess? The same thing. (gasps) Go to Nineveh. Now, in one sense, it feels discouraging. And this is just a reality. The guy who discipled me in college, Bob Lipscomb, he once said to me, if you don't know what to do next, do what you knew to do last because most of the time that was left undone. So I leave church, and I'm like, man, I want to be a person of prayer, but then I really don't do that, <laughs> right? Or I knew I was supposed to forgive someone. I'm like, God, I'll do that, but I'm not going to forgive them. And I don't know what's on that list for you of the thing that was your drawing. Like, God, I'm going to follow you, but I'm not going to give. I'm not going to tithe. I'm not going to serve. I'm not going to love. I'm not going to speak up. I'm not going to, I know I should, but I'm, I'm going to draw the line. To, that's exactly where God brings Jonah to. The very thing that caused his step of disobedience was his first step of obedience. And when you turn back to God, don't be surprised if he says, it's so good to have you back. Let's do the thing that made you want to run in the first place. And that's the good mercy of God. Because when he does that, it can also remind you what it reminds us here in this text. And this is the encouraging part. That all of your running and all of our failing doesn't change the plan of God. So if you look at your life and you know that you've misstepped, that you've gone off, that you've ran, that you've failed, you've been somewhere else, God's plan is unchanged. He still desires to show you mercy and he still desires to show mercy through you, so come back because you can't ruin his plan. So Jonah gets a second chance. How is he going to respond? Verse 3. Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. That's like music compared to chapter 1, verse 3, right? where he arose and goes to Tarshish. Totally opposite direction. This time, nope, he's in it. Why? Because when you get a second chance to obey the Lord, you do it. (laughs) You might have missed it the first time, but whenever God opens that door again and says, hey, I brought you back, I love you, you get to try again, you follow, you step in, you see what God has for you, and Jonah does that. So he goes to Nineveh, the exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And, and now this is where it gets controversial, by the way. Like, there, there's some controversy on this. Here's what happens. He called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. This is called a five-word sermon. It's actually five Hebrew words that he says. Now, the controversy arises here. There's a number of people who say this is called literary summary, which means when an audible message is given, people write down the summary of that message and record it. So they say, surely Jonah said a whole lot more than just this. He doesn't mention God. He doesn't mention repenting. Like, just five words about judgment. There's other people who say this shows Jonah's heart. In Jonah 4, we're going to find out his heart still hasn't really turned. And he only preaches judgment out of spite. He walks in and gives lackluster effort, right? This is the bare minimum. There's other people who say, well, he was believed because his story already went before him. They knew of the incident with the great fish. And others who say his appearance had been bleached, right? His skin was bleached from three days in a whale, and then he smelt fishy, and people were like, that's walking fish puke. It's Davy Jones. Listen to him. And so um, Davy Jones isn't what the scholars say. That was my input on it. But there's all these other opinions about all that had to be there for this to be effective. And as I'm studying all these thoughts, it occurs to me, what if our desire to think that surely there had to be something more than just the message of God says more about our lack of belief in the power of God than the lack of the clarity of God's word? This thought could have just been God's message. We need something more. 
You see, I think verse 3 says he went according to the word of the Lord. So I think he went to Nineveh. I think he gave the message that God gave him to give. And I think it was five Hebrew words. Because I think God's message is enough. And we see that affirmed by Jesus himself. Jesus talks about this moment in Matthew chapter 12. So if you want to turn over, you can. Matthew chapter 12. We'll be back to Jonah 3. So hold your spot. But in Matthew 12, we see this moment where the Pharisees and scribes say, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Meaning, we hear you teaching Jesus, but we need something more. What you're saying just isn't enough. Like, do something for us. Convince us. Compel us. We need more from you. And his response to them is, you're an evil, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. So he's saying, hey, your generation, you seek for a sign. No sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So he uses this moment to say the only sign that this generation, the scribes and Pharisees in the New Testament, were going to get is that the Son of Man would die and rise again. So he's foretelling his death, but he goes on to say this, verse 41. He says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation. So these generations rise together, and they will condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus looks at them, and he says, you have the perfect messenger, Jesus, with the perfect message. So Jesus is being abundantly clear, and even with the right messenger and the right message, the right presentation, their hearts were just hard. They didn't want to hear. And he says, the right repentance, the right way to hear the word of God, we see with Nineveh. So it's really important that we study Jonah chapter 3 because of all of the models of repentance that Jesus could have given us, he gives us the Ninevites to say that's the right way to handle it. We don't need all the other stuff. The word of God is enough. Now, I want I want to address something because uh, our culture today, I think this, this feels complicated because, like I said, we can associate more like the scribes and Pharisees. Yes, give me the word of God, but but doesn't it need to be like from a great speaker or in a great room or like with a great band or doesn't it like it needs all this other stuff. If we were to say, let's plan a movement of God, we would start scheduling all of this, all these other things. And you have to notice what's lacking. When Jonah goes and presents, he shows up and he doesn't share his fish story. He doesn't share his testimony. Here's this amazing story that I've got. They don't, God doesn't need a story. He doesn't share his credibility. Well, I'm a prophet. I've spoke to a king before, and what I said came to be, so you should listen to me. He doesn't do credibility. He doesn't do cultural relevancy. He doesn't get there and say, hey, I know I'm an outsider, but like, who's your greatest athlete in the city? Let's get him, and let's get a band. Let's get food trucks for everybody, and now, like, now I'm going to get the gospel to you. Like, he just shows up, and it's just the word of God doing the work of God because that's how the mercy of God is shared. Right? That's the, the, the rhythm we've seen here, the mercy of God sends the word of God to turn people to God's mercy. And all that's needed is God's word. Now, I believe that, and we believe that. However, the church, the modern church, has come under a lot of criticism for all the other stuff. So I, wanted, I just want to sidebar. This isn't in the text. This is over here on the side. Right? How do we think about this? Because we have all those things. I just want to offer something to you simply. The goal is not to devalue all these other things. The goal is to exalt our value of the word of God. 
to hold this rightly, that the word of God is what God brings to us, and all of this other stuff is what we give back to God. The requirement for the work of God is the word of God believed. The response to the work of God is our worship and our preaching and our gathering and our building and our giving and all of those things. So when you come to church, all of this is an act of worship. That's what this is. It's not necessary. But I feel compelled and necessary to use the gifts God has given me to give back to the Lord because of what he's done for me. And so whenever you come here, and and the musicians that have been changed by the word of God, they have musicianship that they want to give to God, to his glory and the good of his people. And there's people that can craft scenes and lights and media and experiences that they could use for anything else, but God has changed them. And they want to use that creativity and that ability for the glory of God and for the good and joy of God's people. And we have teachers and hospitality people. We have architects. We have people blessed financially. They just want to use that for this God who saved them. That's what all of this is. This is worship. Worship is what we give to the Lord. So when you come to church and you go, man, church was good, we don't mean church was presented well to me. Well, the pastor presented a good message and the music was presented really well and the coffee and the the experience, like it was really good for me. No, you you don't come to worship to get. You come to worship, which means you come to give. That's what we mean. If we say church was good, what we meant is mean the word of God permeated my life. And that's how we measure the effectiveness of the word of God. So just to be clear, all of our things that we do as an act of worship, the buildings we build and the programs we do and the music we have, all of that could go away tomorrow and the word of God is effective to change lives. All of this that we get to do is to the joy of the Lord and the joy of God's people. This is worship. So, if the word is enough, how do we measure it? We don't measure it in presentation. We measure it in permeation. I don't say, was it presented well? I say, did the word of God permeate me? So when I go home and say church was good, what I mean is, man, the word got in me, it messed me up some, and I got free from some stuff. That is the measure of the word of the Lord's effectiveness. So if that's true, we have to say, was it effective? Look back at the text in Jonah 3. Jonah 3, verse 5, after a five-word sermon, five Hebrew words from a Hebrew man in the city of unbelievers, and the people of Nineveh believed God. Not Jonah, right? Because it's not about the messenger. Jesus was the perfect messenger with the perfect message. He wasn't believed because their hearts were hard. It's about our hearts. Jonah doesn't show up for the rest of this chapter. A revival breaks out because it's not about him. They believed God. It starts with belief. Make no mistake, the Ninevites were saved because of their belief, not because of their behavior, but because of their belief. But their belief drives their behavior. They called for for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And then from this moment, uh, the author does a microscope zooming in on the greatest of these. If everybody in the kingdom turned to the Lord, he zooms in on the king specifically and says, just look at the king. And that's what we get in verses six through nine. This is where it's very important for us to look and go, if this is the metric that God or that Jesus uses for repentance, we better understand what repentance looks like. So what does it look like? It says, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, and covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. 
He issued a proclamation to publish through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The word came to the king and the king believed. So, Where does it begin? The mercy of God is that he would send us his word. And the word of God is to be believed. And we know he believed. It says the word right there, verse 6. That's what did the work. It starts with God's word. The word reached the king and he rose from his throne. So there's an immediate response to hearing the word. Happens right away. Now, uh, verse 5 already told us that they believed. So I want to make sure we understand what's happening here. He hears it and then he acts accordingly, which means he believes. That's, that's how we know. Paul tells us we're saved by belief, not by works, but James tells us that our works are proof that we believe. Like if I told you this was hot, don't touch it, and you said, you don't believe me, right? Like you, I told you, now if I say this is hot, don't touch it, and you said, ooh, international sign for I believe you. Ooh, okay, I won't touch it, right? That is behavior in alignment with belief, how do I know if you believe me? By your response. And so we look at this king who gets word from the Lord, and immediately, what does he do? This is, this is the picture of repentance. It says he arose from his throne, so he advocates his authority. He, he leaves his position of authority. It says that he removed his robe, which is his uh, presentation of identity. You knew who the king was because of this unique robe that belongs to him. He removes his authority. He removes his identity. And he covered himself with sackcloth, which was like a, a black uh, goat skin. It was known to, uh, be, uh, to create discomfort in the people that wore it. And then culturally, people would see that and know, oh, they're, they're embracing the discomfort. And they want us to know that the discomfort they feel inside, they're making visual for everybody else. So it increased the discomfort they felt and it validated to everybody that there's something inside of me so broken and so hurt, you can't see it, but I want you to know. So that's what it was. It was an incredible act of humility. I'm as low as I can be and he sat in his ashes, which means these ashes represent mortality. It embraces the fact I don't live forever. I'm dust at the end of this. So he removes authority and identity and embraces humility and mortality. And not just him. It says the greatest to the least. Imagine for just a moment that you look through the city and you can't tell who's a noble, who's a royal, who's a peasant, who's a servant, for all of them have sackcloth on them, sitting in ashes low, all the same. And it's a beautiful picture of salvation because no one comes to the Lord standing tall. When the word of the Lord comes, it doesn't matter your level of influence, it doesn't matter your notoriety, it doesn't matter your past, your history, how much uh, you have done, what you've done, what's been done to you, all of that is gone. We all come to God the same. It's like walking into a kid's playhouse. Any of you guys like, you know what I'm talking about, the little plastic kid's playhouse? We used to have one in our backyard and my daughter would go inside with her little princess dress and she would be like, dad, come play. And I'm like, okay, do y'all know how to get into a kid's playhouse? One way. Here. And you open the door, and you go like this. Very humbling. 
and you get in because the only way to access that beautiful relationship is low and in the dirt. That's it. The only way that we access the Lord is low and in the dirt. That's it. Except what's different is Jesus says, hey, I'm that door. That door was closed to you, and I'm the one that's giving you access. And so you have to come to God the way I came to you. How did God come to us? By Jesus removing his position of authority, removing his identity as God, and coming to the dirt and embracing it more, humility and mortality right alongside with us. He says, that's how I came to you. That's how you come to me. All of you. The difference is when we come through Jesus to God, we're able to stand tall on the other side and realize that we are the children that the Father was waiting for to give us relationship in life. It's the only way in. And that's the way the Ninevites take. Nineveh, all of them, low in the dirt. And it wasn't, so, so that's how they get there. And then it mentions, by the way, that they weren't going to eat or drink. So in verse 5, it says they had a fast. If you don't know, a fast is when you're going without things that bring you comfort or things that bring you sustenance. And so normally, food and drink sustains you. And so you're rejecting food and drink that sustains you, and you're rejecting things that bring you comfort. It's an intentional welcoming of discomfort because discomfort creates despair. And out of despair, we call out for help. And so they proclaimed a fast to say, we're all going to be low. We believe this. And then also, we don't want to lose focus. We don't want to let all the comforts of life distract us and think, ah, maybe we're going to be okay. We've got to reject all of that, make ourselves as uncomfortable as possible, so we cry out to God our only hope. We don't want distracted. So that's what a fast looks like, and that's why they do this. They're all turning their entire mercy to God. And it's not just them. It's their animals, right? This deserves a little explaining because you look at it and you're like, okay, so the king gets down and he's like, all right, Lord, I believe you. And he's like, shame on you, shame on your cow, right? Like everybody's going to fast. Like we're all in sackcloth. And that, so what, what do we make of the animal part of this? Just two quick thoughts. One of them, this was actually common in Eastern culture. So uh, if a royal or noble were to die, then they would put like black velvet on the horses to follow. The dead body is a symbol of mourning. When Caesar died, they asked the uh, oxen not to eat grass or drink water. And it, what it did was the lowing of the oxen out of their misery echoed throughout the area and reminded everybody of the mourning that they were feeling for the loss of their leader. And so it increased the community's despair. It increased the community's focus that, hey, we can't forget this message we heard. We've got to call out to God until he acts on our behalf. Focus them on it. What I love about it, though, is that we don't actually see that happen with God's people. When God's people fast, it's when we're just the people. So there's, there's not a lot of evidence of including animals in this, which paints the picture that the king was saying we're all in. All of us. We're going to do anything we can think of to throw ourselves on the mercy of God. Whenever I think about it, it's, uh, I was talking with Drew about this text, and he brought up this old movie, Fireproof, where pornography was just wreaking havoc on this guy's life, and it was wreaking havoc on his marriage, and he was like, you know, he, he got so uncomfortable realizing that this sin was just had a hold of him, he was going to do anything he could. So he goes and he gets his computer, and he just beats the snot out of the thing, and there's pieces flying everywhere, and you watch it, and you go, like maybe that's a little extra. Probably could have just like sold it back to Best Buy for a few hundred bucks. Um, and if we think 
putting sackcloth on animals is extra, or if we think destroying a computer is extra, Jesus in Matthew 18, 8 says, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off. So it's better to walk into heaven cripple or lame than to walk into eternal fire with two hands or two feet. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It is better to walk into heaven with one eye than to walk into hell with two. Jesus seemed to have a pretty convincing argument to say we are not friends with sin. We don't give it a place in our life. We don't make excuses for it. We don't welcome it. When we see it, we cut off whatever is causing us to sin. And that's not about us being good moral people. That's about us being free from the things that destroy us. Jesus says, let's take it serious. And that's what Nineveh does, right? They take it serious. In fact, they also say, Dodgers, turn from your evil way. If you look back at the text, it's, uh, it's uh, verse 8. Let everyone turn from his evil way and the violence that is in his hand. Do you remember week one? What were the Assyrians known for? Violence. The Assyrian kingdom expanded because of their violence. They are noted, they're noted in history as being one of the most violent, militarized, cruel nations of all time. That is how they had authority. That's how they had identity. That's how they got power was through violence. To be a Ninevite, to be Assyrian, was to be a person of violence. And the king says, hey, the thing we rely on, the thing we find our identity in, the thing we're known for, that doesn't matter. Stop that, whatever it takes to throw ourselves at God. And it's a turn. Stop chasing these, finding identity in these, embracing authority, looking for your control. Leave it and call out mightily to God. It's not just stop, it's replacement. Instead of going this way, I'm going to call out to God. And I'm leaving behind what gives me identity, what gives me comfort, what gives me authority. I leave behind all of that to say, God, I just need you. That's the repentance. And how does God respond to that level of repentance? Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So they believe, right? Out of their belief, they respond appropriately. I believe this message I've heard of God is true. I'm going to stand in judgment from God. I have no hope to escape judgment except that maybe this God is merciful. Maybe he would pardon our sins. It's their only hope. They throw everything towards God and God sees it and he says, I have and always will receive that kind of repentance. That is the promise from the Lord. It's in line with his character. If your Bible says that God repented of the disaster, Augustine tells us that that's a word that's just used to increase our view of God's majesty, not to confuse him for being someone who changes his mind. God had said if a, in Jeremiah 18, he says, if a nation repents, then I will relent from what I had planned for them. And if I had planned good for a nation and they enter into sin, I will relent from the good I had planned for them. God is consistently responsive to repentant hearts. So it doesn't matter where you are, what you've done, what sin exists in you. Today, you have an opportunity to list that sin, confess it before God, and say, God, I walk away from that because your death on the cross and your spirit within me has set me free from the power and the penalty and the presence of sin, and I don't have to have that. That is what waits for you. And that is the only response to this, is by the mercy of God, he has sent the word of God that we can know, we can repent and turn to the God of mercy. And this is the kind of repentance. And so I, I want to move to applying this for us. 
And it's really a pretty straightforward application. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 helps with this. I apologize, it's not on your screen. But it says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So if you heard this message and you're like, good, some sinners up in here need to repent. Uh, we know. <laughs> if you were like, I got to go to church, and I got to make sure nobody thinks that I'm sinning. Um, cat's out of the bag. Okay? You're a sinner. As am I. So, so it's there. What do we do with that? Verse 9. If we confess our sins, he, being God, is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you have sin. What do you do with it? You confess it to the Lord. God, this sin is in me. He forgives you. He wipes it away. Chapter 2, verse 1, 1 John says, My little children, I write these things so that you may not sin. So he goes, I'm writing this so, so you would stop it. So if you're sinning, here's like the two-word sermon for you. Stop it. All right? Stop. But, but, but Cody, what, like what if I stumble again? Great. Chapter 2, verse 1. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is a propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. So what is the response to this? That's the word of God. God says he will forgive your sins if you confess them to him. He will receive you when you believe his word. Out of belief, we confess sins to God and we turn away and say, I don't need that in my life anymore. God, you have the authority. I'm going to follow you. Rep believe and repent. And be forgiven. And what we saw in Jonah 3, verse 10, instead of death, you get life. That's what's on the other side of this. Because what I'm about to ask you to do is going to feel a touch uncomfortable. Because it's not popular in today's culture. But here's what we're going to do collectively as a church. We're going to repent from our sin. That's the only logical response to chapter 3 of Jonah. Is to say, we've heard from the Lord. We know we need him. And if there's sin in me, I'm done. I leave it. And not because I've got the power to walk away from it, but because I'm throwing myself on the mercy of God that if I don't have him, I've got nothing. And so we repent from our sin, not to feel guilty of it, but to be set free from it. So if you have something to write with, get that out, pen and paper. If you don't have something to write with, there might be a little pen and like one of those little uh, giving envelopes in the back of the chair that churches have had since God created church and like you used to doodle on them. You, you, use that. If, if you don't want to do that, you may have a phone. You can open up the notes section. I just, what I'm going to say is don't turn off your brain. Don't sit and listen to us play. I'm going to ask you to start confessing your sin. And the best way that I do that is I start writing it down before the Lord because it's super uncomfortable to go, hey, this thing I'm writing down exists in me. This pride that I have, yeah, that, that's in me. This lust, this making much of myself, this having to make everything about me, this gossip, this quick an angry tone, the words that I use, the things that I'm hiding, the addiction that I have, the list goes on and on and on and on. And I, I write those down before the Lord to go, God, this is in my life, but it doesn't have to be because you've set me free from it. So I confess it to you because you are faithful and just to forgive my sins and I am accepting your forgiveness for this and I'm walking away from it. And you write it down so you can keep it and then you can look at it and not go, oh, I'm so guilty for sinning. But then you look at it and you go, those are the things God's freed me from. 
And a month from now, you can look at it and go, I repented from gossip and praise God. I'm using my words to edify, not to tear people down. You can look at it and go, I repented from laziness. And look, I'm present with my family. I repented from, and you can look at it and go, God, you're setting me free because you're so good. We have to repent. So if you are, I'll say if you're a believer in this room, if you have made that full commitment to go through that door of Jesus Christ, humble and love, got nothing but you, and he's given you life, but there's still remnant sin, use right now the next five minutes to write them down, record them before the Lord, confess them, and say, I'm set free from these according to your word. So that's your homework. You can start now if you want. I'm not going to time it. If you are in this room and you have not actually taken that initial step, You've never confessed your sins to the Lord. You have never embraced that he is the authority, that he is the king, and that apart from turning to him, destruction is your end. If you've never said, God, today's a day of salvation. I turn from all my sin, all my identity, everything else. You have me completely. Forgive me and make me yours. Today's your day of salvation. That's never been you. I'm just going to encourage you. Whenever I pray, I don't want you to pray with me. I want you to pray to this God that you believe in and say, God, I believe your word. I believe Jesus Christ died for me and rose again, forgives me of the sin, and, and I can be forgiven. And pray and say, God, would you forgive me today and I want to follow you. And if you make that decision, I want to talk to you right after service. I'm going to be waiting up here. Come talk to me now or I'll be waiting in that back room. But I want to meet you. Our other pastors want to meet you. And we want to celebrate that God has saved you and rescued you because that's what God's word does. We have a few minutes to respond as a family. Let me pray over you. When we finish praying, music's going to start. You use this time to repent and be set free. Or you use this time to take your step into faith. Let's pray. God, thank you that your word does the work. We don't have to have all of this other stuff, but your word changes us. I pray today your word would take root in lives. And for your children, like me, that still have remnant sin chasing us and we walk away, God, would you reveal that sin? Make it obvious so we can be free from it. Reveal it so we can embrace your forgiveness. Reveal it so we can walk in light as children of the light. Father, for those that are in this room that have never turned to you, they've never confessed sin, they've never received your forgiveness to set them free, Lord, I believe you are calling them today to free them. I pray right now they would pray and ask your forgiveness. They would admit they are a sinner. They would confess that they believe Jesus died on the cross, rose again as a way to have their sins forgiven. And Lord, that they would turn from their sin and decide to follow you.